Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, for coming along today. It's going to be a fascinating discussion over the next hour about North Korea. I'm Stan Grant, and uh, in, in, with me today on the stage is uh, Suki Kim. Suki has written a, a terrific book called Without You, There Is No Us, her experience working in a North Korea university through the eyes of a woman born in South Korea and then living in the United States. Anna Bronowski, the director, is the commander. Anna took a unique journey inside North Korea to have a look at their film industry. Anna is a filmmaker, uh, to look at the way film is used and the way it is used in propaganda in North Korea. And Michael Kirby, former High Court judge, of course, who's carried out, who's also written, <laughs> written a book with the title of The Commission of Inquiry on Human Rights in the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Very good. Excellent bedtime reading if you don't want to go to sleep. If you want nightmares, this is what, this is what you read. There are some images in journalism that will never leave me in 30 years of being a journalist, and one of those images is of standing on the Chinese side of the border with North Korea, looking across a very narrow strip of water. On the Chinese side, there are cars, there is noise, there are lights. And on the North Korea side, there is nothing but darkness. The air even seems to hang more heavily on the, on the, the North Korea side of the border. There was one light that I could see in the distance, and that was a light that was illuminating a portrait of the then leader, Kim Jong-il. Grass was about six feet high across the other side of the border and I wondered why until I saw North Korean soldiers moving along that side of the river. Like the stars at night, once I saw one, I saw a hundred. And the foxholes that lined the river with soldiers aiming their weapons across the other side, waiting to see if anyone had tried to cross. People do cross. There are thousands of defectors, people who make their way from North Korea with stories that shine a light into what is a isolated, the most isolated, and the most brutal still regime on the planet. Later, I had an opportunity to go into North Korea several times and report from their side and travel through the country and getting on occasion to actually talk to North Koreans themselves. So we're going to be able to discuss over the next hour North Korea, North Korea that exists in our imagination, the North Korea that exists in reality on that side and what the future for that country may be. And I, I want to start with you, first of all, the idea of going in there to make a film, bearing in mind, of course, that Kim Jong-il was the greatest filmmaker the world had ever seen, um, and, uh, was personally involved in overseeing the productions of North Korea. What, where did the idea come from? Yeah, and Kim Jong-il invented the, the, the three-camera shoot. Did you know yeah, that? Yeah, right. on and, and was the world's greatest golfer, I think, uh, as well. Absolutely. Um, it came from this. This is uh, what I thought at the time was cinematic kryptonite. This was a birthday mm. present. This is Kim Jong-il's manifesto on how to make the perfect socialist propaganda movie. And his filmmakers still follow its rules. Um, at the time I was given the book, my impression of Kim Jong-il was very much uh, what most of us have, which is he was some kind of internet pop icon, you know? Mm. The guy with the racer head hair and platform heels who sang about being lonely and fed Hans Blix to the sharks in <laughs> Team America. 
um, and every once in a while would lob a bomb at, mm. at America and invariably miss and play viral videos with Michael Jackson's soundtracks um, about nuking New York. Anyway, the minute I read this book, I was fascinated. It became clear to me that not only did Kim Jong-il really understand film techniques, he was a big fan of Hollywood genre movies, in particular Steven Spielberg. And the more research I did, the more I realised that, in fact, he was the bastard child of Spielberg and Lenny Reifenstahl, <laughs> in that he had used mm. Hollywood techniques of persuasion to manipulate, basically, 24 million-plus North Koreans to believe in the period of about 30 years from 1964, when he inherited control of the propaganda department, that his father Kim Il-sung was close to a god. So he revolutionised North Korea's cinema industry. As a conceit, I thought, what would it be like if I followed these counterintuitive, bombastic propaganda film rules with a very sophisticated Sydney cast, Susan Pryor, Peter O'Brien, shot by Geoffrey Simpson? But, and so it started as a joke, but then I thought, hang on a minute, what if I got the advice of North Korea's top filmmakers mm. on how to make my film? So ultimately, my project became a Trojan horse to get inside North Korea mm. and hopefully get access to, as you said, it's the most isolated nation on earth, try and get another window onto that country that we normally don't get. Now, so course, it became a lens, yeah. Getting in there is difficult. We'll, we'll discuss that. Let's just have a little look at a clip from the film, this is Anna meeting the North Korean film the, uh, director. Oh, can I just say yes, something yeah, yeah. before, just to set it up for you. Um, one of Kim Jong-il's rules is that you must have a capitalist enemy, every great socialist movie. So I looked around Sydney, I was going to set it in the humble village of Erskineville, and I thought, <laughs> you know, who, who is the capitalist enemy here? Is it the 24-7 McDonald's? Is it West Connects? That wasn't happening at the time. Oh no, it's the coal seam gas mine that mm. they want to drill in Sydney Park. So I thought, free market capitalism, unfettered, coal seam gas. So I went to North Korea and I said to their filmmakers, I want you to help me make a film in your great leader's style to stop the evil gas miners from fracking our park. Mm. Um, this is the this point is in happened. the movie when I say that. Let's have a look. <laughs> look forward to working with you to make a great short film. Thank you, thank you very much for watching. Did you like meeting my cast? He, he knows that you were an actress. No, not very good. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 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 
Yes, it has come from my heart because I want to stop this gas because it will make my daughter sick. Do you have coal seam gas mining in your country? No. Are you aware of climate change? I don't know anything. I should point out. I, I should point out that that was North Korea's filmmaking elite. Mm. So they're Martin Scorsese, they're Meryl yeah, Streep. Yeah. Um, they do live a privileged lifestyle. So and let me just say that straight do, up. Now, we'll bring in Suki Kim because Suki knows about the privileged lifestyle of North Koreans. She taught the elite of North Korea at a university. Take us through how you made that journey. In fact, before that, the fascination as a South Korean that North Korea has held for you and the impact it has had directly on your family? So um, I was born and raised in South Korea and um, my family was torn apart by the war. So my grandmother um, lost her son who was 17 when the war happened, who was then taken to North Korea. So I did uh, grow up with that tragedy in our family and this is not that uncommon. Mm. Um, you know, millions of people were affected by that war, were separated. So um, for me, it was a very personal human tragedy, what North Korea means to me, the Korean division. And later, I moved to America when I was 13, and I became a writer. Um, I published my first novel, and I was now an essayist for different magazines, like a literary nonfiction. And um, I went to North Korea for the first time in 2002, ended up doing a feature essay for the New York Review of Books, and that was the 60th birthday celebration of Kim Jong-il, the then great leader. And what I realized then, in order to write that essay, I actually joined this pro-North Korea organization at the time. So I did stay at VIP quarters, and I had a totally different experience of being with this pro-North Korea activist in 2002 to be a part of the 60th birthday celebration. And what I realized was that everything was a propaganda. There was just absolutely nothing I could access that would tell me. Very, very good at it. Excellent really at it. You know, I'm fluent in Korean. Um, they were so good at it that I knew everything I was seeing was not true. Mm. Um, it was so heartbreaking. I actually wept that whole time. I was there for eight days in this VIP quarter. This was right after their famine, which killed almost a tenth of the population. And there was not even electricity even in the VIP quarter or even at the airports in 2002. Um, and like a baggage, you know, where the baggage, mm. the, it just was stationary. And I didn't even understand why that's not moving. It didn't, because there was no electricity. I kept going back in. I went 2008 uh, for the New York Philharmonic in Pyongyang concert. And I also did a feature essay, nonfiction, about that whole experience, which was again a sham. Um, so I was looking for a way that I could go in and actually live there. I realized that was the only way I can get to the heart of this place, which now became a writerly obsession. And in 2011, I found that. I found that there was this evangelical Christian organization was setting up a school for the sons of North Korea's elite. And I'll just stop you there as well, because remember, Christianity, of course, is banned and proselytizing is illegal. So the Christians are running 
a school where they can't actually talk about Christianity. But this group, because people thought this was somehow grassroots missionaries who start sending you know, Bibles out yes. in North Korea and get gulag sentences, that's not what it was. Yes. This group actually made an unofficial deal with the North Korean regime in order to operate this school. And they were funding this $35 million venture. So I went in because I was never on staff anywhere as a journalist, because that's um, impossible to, to go in undercover. I went, joined a missionary organization, and um, w went in there as posing as a teacher. Um, so I lived there during the six months, which turned out to be Kim Jong-un's final year, 2011. That year, because North Korea has a different calendar system, that's the, they were preparing for the 100-year anniversary, because they counted from the birth of Kim Il-sung, the original great leader. They shut down every university in the country for a year, put all university students into construction fields. The only ones that did not do that were the students at this university. So that goes show you that these were the creme de la creme of North Korea. So, so you're there in North Korea and you're having to carry out this subterfuge. You're living there secretly and you know what could happen to you if you were discovered and what your true motive was, you would likely never get out of there. How did you function just in that sort of environment? Well, I mean, I knew that uh, from having been there before, I knew that they searched your uh, mm. computer. Uh, so I did put my document on USB sticks and I erased it every single time. Um, and I had several of those. So I knew that if, um, and also like I had a document that was within a document. So that if they looked at it, it actually looked like a school notes. Um, and that precaution was necessary because I think by then I understood that this was not a good thing if these, these things get, get caught because it is espionage really. But there was no other way of getting to whatever that's at the core of that place without that because they would never tell you when you ask questions. Even my students that I lived with, this was a compound, only men, young men, age 19. I lived with them. None of us were allowed out of the compound except this great leader visits. The students never left. What that meant was I spent every minute with those young men, three meals a day. And it took months and months before you start getting glimpses of what they're really thinking. Mm. Because all you ever get is a great deal of propaganda. Michael Kirby, we're hearing about the power of propaganda, the control of the state, the, the way that it, it permeates every aspect of people's lives and indeed their minds. So you're commissioned by the United Nations to shine a light into this. How do you even begin to try to investigate a country that is so closed? Yes, well, um, we concluded by the application of the normal test that this is a totalitarian country. And of course, it's, it's very common in the West to laugh at them. And to to find find it a big joke and Dennis Rodman and mm. the hairdo and so on, but this is not a laughing matter. This is a really serious problem. Serious. It's it's a problem for tears uh, and it's serious for the people inside, but it's also extremely dangerous for us and mm. for people who are close to them. They uh, reportedly have twenty nuclear warheads. <laughs> They have a missile delivery system, which is increasingly sophisticated. They are developing a submarine facility uh, to, uh, which will have the potential to deliver these warheads. 
And this is very dangerous. The, the dangers may be accident and mistake rather than a deliberate um, setting out to have a nuclear war. But it's a very serious situation. And uh, I must admit, when I watched Anna's movie, I, I, I didn't really laugh. I, didn't, I, I can't find it. It's not Funny. all the comedy, no, <laughs> the no, movie. No. In, fa in but, fact, yeah. the humour is often ironic mm. because we know what really lies behind the humour. When you look at human rights, what rights do humans have in North Korea? Well, um, we conducted the inquiry in a very open way. We got public hearings, we got people who had suffered to come forward and tell their stories. Some of them, I suppose, may have exaggerated. One of them recanted partially in what he had said. But overwhelmingly, it's a tremendously powerful story of people suffering. <clears throat> and that was then picked up by the United Nations. I have to say, as somebody's worked with the United Nations, which, which can be a maddening organisation, that this was one occasion where everything that should have been done was done. It, the Human Rights Council adopted it, sent it to the General Assembly. The Assembly, uh, by a huge vote, sent it to the Security Council. And the Security Council, unusually, took it up onto its agenda by a procedural vote, which under the Charter is not subject to the veto. Mm. So everything that should have been done has been done. But now the question is, how do we take this the next step? How do we get some action that really changes things inside. Well, of course, it, it runs into North Korea itself. But uh, can I just tease you out on some of the details about the brutality of the regime and what people experience, particularly people who have defected and tell stories of the gulag, tell stories of the treatment of their own family inside North Korea? Well, it's actually uh, rather like a Holocaust museum. If you've ever gone into a Holocaust museum, museum yeah. Uh, and you, you nowadays, when you go into them, there's a wonderful such museum in Washington. There's quite a good, there's the Jewish Museum here in Sydney. But it's the strange way that people who have suffered the unbelievable tell their stories in a chronological fashion, in a very low-key way. Um, and... Uh, no doubt Suki and Anna have seen this, insofar as they open up, it's just as if, well, this is the story and they tell it, and as if they have some inner feeling that they've got to tell their story to justify the fact that they are surviving, that they are still here. Because as has been said, a very large number, uh, at least 800,000, possibly a million, uh, perished in the Great Famine of the mid-1990s. Mm -hmm. Suki, the people you were teaching were the elite. Did they offer any glimpse into what they thought may be the reality of life outside their own in that country? Was there any awareness at all of what may be happening to people uh, in the gulags, people who did not enjoy the privilege of what I imagine were the sons of the military and, and so on that you were speaking to? You know what I found amazing, um, because I, you know, I researched this, followed this topic for over a decade. Um, from 2002, I interviewed actually like close to 100 defectors in all the surrounding region. So um, yes, there's a lot of corruption there, lies, um, exaggeration. But whatever it is, the the uh, testimonies that I was getting 
in the border regions, interviewing them and actually being in their hiding places and stuff that it's just horrific, right? Yeah. Horrific. Um, but then when I went in and I'm spending every day with a 19-year-old, the future leaders of North Korea, at a very personal level. And what actually surprised me was that I thought that these people, because they're elite, had a different sort of set of uh, privilege. And they do, you know, they have more and they look healthier. But they just were just in their own little shell also. They had no sense of freedom. They uh, that's, think of wandering outside. Maybe they do it in their private moment, mm. but they will never show it to you. And also, little things. It's not like they'll never tell you anything. But for example, you know, like they, uh, the, their regime took us to their famous mountain. Korea has two very famous mountains, Myohyangsan and Gumgangsan. These are along the whole peninsula. South Koreans, you know, people who originally came from North Korea, weep because they can never go back to those mountains. Um, so the students, my students would tell me every detail about every corner of those mountains. None of them had been, been on those mountains in person. And these are the sons of elite. And from the stories I was getting outside, I thought, yes, the, the elites are partying and know everything. But they also were not allowed to go anywhere outside of their little tiny whatever the thing is. So what that means is their scope was just, they were totally infantilized in their own way mm. and just didn't have an ounce of freedom. Yeah. That wondering you're talking about, wondering about the outside world or the, 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 the you know, less privileged half of the country, I think that's also a privilege of mm. a, a free mind, which mm. I don't think that these young men were given that chance. Mm. Indeed, to even, to even imagine freedom can be a death sentence itself. I know that, you know, speaking to people in North Korea who had family members go to jail because they hadn't uh, dusted properly the, the portrait of the dear leader or because of an accusation against a grandfather who they accuse of being a collaborator with the Japanese, the grandson could find themselves in a gulag just on the basis of the allegation alone. So to even allow your thoughts to roam freely in a country like North Korea is difficult. So Anna, in, those, in that environment, you're going in there, and I've heard you say this, to try to shine a light into a country beyond the gulag, beyond that, that, uh, that identification, the definition that we have of the country, to look at them as real people. How do you get to meet the real people when the real people themselves are not even able to express themselves. Yeah, not, not beyond the gulags. The gulags mm. are admittedly yeah. horrific and brutal and it's uh, shocking. And however, as well as the gulags, yeah, yeah. Um, what I was trying to do was shine or point my lens at that one third of the North Korean population, so approximately eight million people, who according to the United Nations statistics have enough, obviously third world by our standards, mm but enough shelter and food to survive and to go to the movies. So all I was trying to do as a filmmaker was point my lens over here and say, let us understand North Korea as not an unremittingly evil society on every level, mm. which there are arguments that it is, and they are valid, but hey, but, we're but, talking but, dangerous but ideas human here. human beings lead human lives. Yes, in but these we never hear still, about yeah. these people. Yeah. And my problem, is not so much us versus them. What I'm coming at it from is a cultural diplomacy, a diplomacy perspective, us 
and them. My worry is, if we simply have three stories about North Korea all the time, much as they are valid ones, the starvation, the gulags, and the brainwashing, we are going to see the North Koreans en masse, as we do right now in the mainstream media, as dehumanized mm. automatons. This is dangerous. Um, and I'm not alone here. Chad O'Carroll says it in the American media. Bill Richardson, the former governor mm. of New Mexico, says You've it. You've been there several the, times. The rumour mill on North Korea is out of control. The media has abnegated its responsibility to report and corroborate on North Korea responsibly. If you can publish, and as Michael said, if you can publish something that's funny about North Korea and it gets clicks, that's all that matters. Yeah. In the last year alone, there have been five false stories that have gone viral about North Korea in publications as august as the Huffington Post and the Washington Post, the New York Times, including Kim Jong-il, executed his girlfriend, well, false. So, the, the, the interview, um, the film, the interview. The, the interview, exactly. North Korea apparently hacked Sony. No, they didn't. North yeah. Security said it was the, you know, disgruntled ex-employees. So I guess my thing is to add to our understanding of North Korea simply by trying to point the lens at people who have something to say about it. And the filmmakers that I met, um, unlike Suki, I was able to talk to them in Korean. I, I believe that most of the time you had to speak to them in English. Um, and one of them in particular, I spoke to in Japanese, go figure, mm. the language of imperial enemy number two. So um, Kim Jong-il's favourite director, the white-haired guy, Park Song-soo, he and I spoke together in Japanese and correct. If I had said, what about the gulags, mm. he would have been in trouble, I would have been kicked out. So we spoke in metaphors, mm. in Japanese. We spoke about our families. And by the end of the two trips that I took there, we trusted each other enough to say things that perhaps wouldn't have happened normally. And I'll never forget on the last night that we were together, he started speaking Japanese and he said, she doesn't know anything about our country, does she? To one of the other guys. And he said, no, all they get is propaganda about our country. Mm. And I said, well, that's true. And we hear about your gulags. And I thought that at that point they'd shut up, but he didn't. He said, Anna, there's a seismic shift coming in our country. Mm. That's what you can take back to Australia. Everything's going to change. And he did know what was going on, I suspect, very strongly. That doesn't necessarily mean change with the overthrow of the regime, though. That Who knows? Yeah. Who knows well, what we, he was talking waiting, about there? We've yeah. been waiting for the seismic shift for 70 years. Yeah. And uh, every, everybody had high expectations of Kim Jong-un. Mm. He was partly educated in Switzerland. Uh, he was said to be very interested in um, media, in uh, the digital technology, in Hollywood stars. Everybody thought this is going to be a big change, but unfortunately, he hasn't had the prudence of his father or the mm. charisma of his grandfather. He has been violent. He has killed uh, leaders, people in the, in the elite. He's Members killed of his, his brother-in-law. Yeah. His uncle. Uh, he, uh, his uncle, uh, and he's been... <laughs> Violent, And the problem is if you've got a society where people are cut off in this element of unreality and you've got a violent tradition and you've got extremely dangerous weapons and you've got a lot of people very ill-nourished, you've got a really very dangerous situation. And, and, and Suki, the, the issue too when I was there reporting and no doubt you found this, um, was the issue of trust. There were many people I spoke to, minders who were attached to me to oversee what I reported and made sure that I towed the line. 
who would become very close to me, who would befriend me, we'd go and have dinner together, who would tell me stories of their family and their children and their aspirations, who would tell me how much they like Western music, even if it was air supply. Um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, but but I, I never trusted and they never trusted me. The entire thing, as Suki has said, is a sham. So how do you untangle the sham from the reality? Being a South Korean as well, how much more guarded did you need to be and how much more suspicious were they of you? Well, um, yeah, I mean, if you know the language, I actually did speak to minders in Korean, um, but minders do watch you uh, because the whole, I mean, if you do understand, I mean, imagine if, uh, if a, a Korean person came to Australia and they didn't speak English versus if they spoke English. It's not that different. I mean, especially here where everything is theater. So uh, with minders, I speak Korean, but even when I did the Philharmonic coverage, they immediately separated South Korean uh, reporters from the Westerners and put them in different hotels. And South Koreans were getting incredible surveillance because you know the language. Uh, like I was in the Western uh, media and I had all these minders basically surrounding me because you know the language, you're just gonna pick up stuff or overhear something they're saying. So um, in the school, I spoke to minders in Korean and um, with the students, I wasn't allowed to speak. Uh, mm. English. I mean, I wasn't allowed to speak Korean, but they generally liked Korean teacher better because because this was a school run by the evangelical missionaries, and they would actually say they just of course you know they feel more comfortable with Koreans even when you're speaking in English. And they did ask me one of the last things they asked me. The only thing they ever asked me was to speak to them in Korean because I wasn't allowed to address them in Korean. But that whole theater aspect of things being sham, you know, I had a minder crying on my second visit. I cried. I do believe those tears are real, but then there's the, the hyper-vigilance uh, and the fear that's instilled where they all have to report on each other and on us is, is also real. Mm -hmm. So even if you cry from this emotional connection, they do have to turn around and make a report about you. That's their job. That's, I mean, the minders lived in the same building as the teachers in that compound. And you know, the human connection, I'm not saying that's not real, but the regime's control is more real in mm. that world. Mm. And that sham thing is really hard to prove. How much theater is this? You know, like during the Philharmonic time, they told me to go interview anybody on the street, massive people. And I pulled one person out. She was a student of music. You know, I mean, what are the coincidences of, <laughs> of that one person in the crowd that I pulled being a student of music, excited to hear the New York Philharmonic concert? But I did get a, a very indirect proof during my time when I was teaching my students. The, the sons of elite were never allowed out of campus all those months. There was only one time they were. Suddenly they were rounded up. None of us knew where they were going. They didn't know where they were going. And I was really worried because all the other youth that year were in construction fields doing manual labor. And I thought that's where they went. Instead, they were taken to the birthplace of Kim Il-sung, Mount Mangyongde, which is basically one place they were allowed to go all their lives. They've gone like every year. So why were they suddenly taken to Mangyongde, the birthplace of Kim Il-sung? I tried to talk to them, ask them. They wouldn't really answer. The only thing they said was there were some foreign people there. So it seemed to me that foreigners came, some important people probably, and they probably needed a backdrop of Pyongyang students who look really healthy, 
Because what other, what, what other explanation is there? So that kind of theater aspect of a sham was very much a part of North Korea, which is why it's so hard to yeah. write about it. Because if you write that stuff, then now you're a publicist. What else are you? Yeah, you yeah. see what you want to see. Um, would you have time for some questions? If you'd like to make your way, there's a microphone here and a microphone there. Um, try to keep your question as brief as possible. We can get through and direct your question to whichever person you would like. As you make your way there, just to reiterate some of the things that Suki has said, I recall being there on the 100th anniversary of the birth of Kim Il-sung. And it was not long after Kim Jong-il had died. And we were taken out by our minders to speak to some ordinary people. And they allowed us to go up and speak to these people who were genuinely moved by the death of Kim Jong-il and genuinely in tears. But as these people started to cry, our minder suddenly thrust himself in front of the camera and broke down uncontrollably weeping, lest he be seen to not be as affected as they were. Because someone was going to report on the fact that he didn't cry when they cried. So everything is overlain with this heaviness of the state and the expectation that someone somewhere is watching you. Um, first Can question. I just say yes. that, that it was interesting in our inquiry that a number of the witnesses who had given rather condemnatory evidence said that they loved Kim Il-sung, mm. mm. that they, yes. they really admired him. He was the founder of our country. And, and that, that, of course, you know, from a point of view of a judge, it, it rings true when you have somebody who says something that you wouldn't have expected them to say, consistent with evidence, which is very critical of the regime. But they were essentially telling us Everything went downhill when Kim yes. uh, Jong-il came along and now with uh, Kim Jong-un. And uh, they loved Kim Il-sung. And yeah. it, it does appear he was a very charismatic person. And he was, of course, it's not so, certain so he was born on that mountain. That's no, no, supposed no, no, to no, be no, a, Kim a story. Was apparently, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Born in the Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Soviet Union. But I think also he was, he was a, 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 you know, a revolutionary figure and a, and, and a great resistance fighter against the Japanese. And this is historical fact. And this mm. is what See, people... See, they've got a monarchy, but it's not a constitutional monarchy. No. It's it, an absolute monarchy. Yeah. It's, it's the last absolute monarchy, I think, in the world. And yes. it's, it's a very cruel regime. And I'm the puzzle is what on earth we do. What will the world do? What will America now oh. do having got Iran, they hope, out of well, the way? Sure as hell That's they the question. I, I sure as hell hope that they don't take the Syrian <laughs> or the Iraqi solution and try for mm. regime and, change. And, and I think just, just before we, we come to the questions, and Suki, I think this is something you can shine a light on as well what it is like on the North Korean side, indeed what it is like for South Koreans, to have tens of thousands of American troops still on your soil. And the North Koreans know that across the demilitarized zone, there is tens of thousands of, of American troops. There are nuclear armed American subs and warships off the coast of North Korea. This is a war that has never ended. There has never been a peace treaty. Uh, so for the North Koreans themselves, they, there would be a sense of being under siege and potentially having their regime toppled. This is the minds of the military and the elite themselves. Do you find that? Well, everything there is, is, is war. You know, the workplace, mm. the word they use is actually battlefield. Um, like a classroom was a platoon, not a classroom. So it's as if like war is very much in your, the language they use in Korean is all war related. 
So it, the, the urgency, but it's also a country where young men do go to army for 10 years mandatory service, most of them, not the elite. So, and when I talk to my students about that, you know, they don't really come home. You know, like they, they just really, they come home maybe once every four years or something during those 10 year time. So the, there is just no sense of mercy. Mm. But I think when you go talk about Kim Il-sung and, and American presence, it's amazing to me, and I think that's also part of why I became obsessed with it, that we forgot wh- why that war happened. Mm. You know, we forgot the Cairo Conference in 1943 where actually Churchill <laughs> and, you know, the United States sat down and decided Talked to cut up, yeah. cut up Korea. It's a colonial remapping. 30th parallel was drawn by the United States. The allies and the, what the U.S. has done and with the Russia that we now somehow rewrote history. There was a civil war. We went to help. I know Australia was part of helping force, but that help was actually what um, allies had done in dividing up what's a 5,000-year-old kingdom. And I think, you know, I become very emotional on this topic, and I think part of it is because I felt like my grandmother's generation just lost their son and, and waited for that son to come home because there had never been a border, and now we have this suddenly this border that was going to go away next week. But it didn't, you know, it stayed for 70 years. And that generation that lost their sons and mothers Who's going to answer for that lost generation? Yeah. And all of that was created actually because of politics, not because Koreans suddenly yes. decided to be North and South. And Kim Il-sung was actually handpicked by Russia yes. Yes. as the president of South Korea, handpicked by the United States. Can I just... Yeah, want, yeah, yeah. Just I, very, very quickly, and then, then we need to take some questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm having flashbacks to Iraq and before we invaded them. The Kims are bastards, but they are their bastards. And it's very important, I think, what Suki is saying as well. We helped create North Korea. The way Mm. we report on North Korea is as if we are also Mm. at war. We get propaganda from Mm. this side. Every time North Korea says, and we will bomb New York, what what the media doesn't report is is they're also saying, if South Korea Mm. and the Americans Mm. lob a bomb at us. So I think it's incredibly important to try and understand, and I did through the filmmakers who make military propaganda films, one called I Country I Saw, which is celebrating Kim Jong-il bringing the nuclear bomb to North Korea, that from their point of view, they are under attack. Yeah, under they're attack, terrified. Yeah. And, and that, that, that's certainly you know? the impression you get when you're there. Yeah. Okay, first question here, please. Okay. I'll just guess I'll yell. Oh, oh, there yes, we go. Right. <laughs> um, <clears throat> sorry, despite um, the... Well, brutally horrific violation of human rights and the... Can't hear you. Go closer to the mic. <laughs> Despite the brutal like violation of human rights and the effective propaganda, is there still a sense of national pride among the general populace of the North Koreans? And do they understand if their situation is the real norm in North Korea or the norm of the world? Uh, 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 Sugi and then, then Michael. Sugi, did you...? What was the question? Is there uh, the, a general the, was, pride? Was there a sense of real pride amongst North Koreans in being North Koreans? Um, now, I think you can probably... All Koreans have a great sense of pride in being Korean. Um, did you find that in North Korea a particular pride amongst the North Koreans? I thought so. I mean, I think that I got, definitely got that sense from all those interviews with defectors, but also my students. Um, it's their home. You know, <laughs> I mean, I think that's what we forget because it's, it's I mean, people always ask me so because I was there when Kim Jong-il died 
and by then, you know, it was the end of it, it's my last day, so I feel like I understood my students and how horribly sad they really were. And I think it's actually a simple answer of, even if you have a bad father, if your bad father died, you would be really, really sad. So even if there's a lot of problems in North Korea, of course they're proud. It's their home, it's their nation. And, and you were saying as well, we imagine, and look, it's not imagination, it's fact, the horrific circumstances of people's lives there, but human beings can find dignity and joy and love even in the toughest circumstances. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I interviewed several defectors, defected filmmakers in, in South Korea, and one of them talked about how he still missed it desperately. It's possible to find love and happiness even in hell was basically... Uh, the human spirit and the mm. capacity, the resilience. Uh, I was struck by the humour of the North Koreans mm. and how humour is actually a subversive thing and a survival mechanism. M Michael, uh, do you I, have I still think we have to keep our feet on the ground here. Uh, that great man, um, uh, Kim Dae-jong, who was the liberal uh, president of South Korea, who twice walked to the gallows under the regime in South Korea, mm. uh, but who became the president, he had the sunshine policy, he reached out, he gave money, he tried to get uh, progress in the North, and during that time they developed their nuclear arsenal. Yeah. And secondly, when President Obama came to office, uh, he immediately, in the first week, he sent a message to North Korea uh, uh, and by an envoy, and the envoy wasn't allowed to present it to uh, the Supreme Leader. Uh, they were slapped back and within a month, North Korea sent a missile over Japan. Uh, so that, you know, we've got to, you, you could wish that everything were different. We do have to reach out. The Commission of Inquiry listed a few very practical things, like just having posts between North and South Korea, sending dentists from between North and South Korea and other such things. But we've just got to face the fact that this is a very strange mm. regime and we've got to be very realistic about it. Nobody, I think, in, that I've spoken to in the United States talks about a military solution. It's unthinkable given mm. the concentrations of populations. And we never spoke about regime change because they are a member of the United Nations. Mm. But something has to change. And we thought that Kim Jong-un would bring the change and he hasn't, he's been bad. Uh, and therefore, we've got this dilemma, and the question is, how do we get out of this dilemma? And uh, it's, it's the peace and safety of the world and of the people of Korea, and mm. the North Koreans, including. Yes, a question here, number two. G'day. I was just wondering, I was going to ask the panel about the dangerous idea of the morality of foreign tourism in North Korea, notwithstanding that it is a farce and... Uh, a pageant, is it wrong to visit? It's a, it's a great question because that's how you were able to get access there because of a, a company that runs tours into North Korea. Is it wrong? No, not at all. I think more knowledge, the more knowledge we can gather, albeit controlled, and it's like going through the Truman Show sometimes, the better. I agree um, and with I, I think we need to build cultural bridges. And in fact, there's just to pick up on what Mike was saying, <laughs> what can be done, there's a wonderful journalist, very brave Japanese man who for the last seven years has been smuggling USBs of South Korean soap operas and American movies and movies from the West across the border of the Yellow River into a North Korean fixer who's been basically disseminating this stuff. And I think anything we can do that empowers the people themselves to understand that mm. what they're being 
being fed is a sham is, is the humane, is the cultural, is the knowledge-based solution. And I think there's a lot of hypocrisy um, in America who runs Guantanamo as an invaded 70 to 90, I think, sovereign nations since the late yeah. 19th century well, in calling North Korea evil. Suki, I actually disagree with have, that. Yeah. You, you have been concerned about people who go there and drink the Kool-Aid. People who go there and actually believe what they see um, end up uh, becoming almost apologists for North Korea. I know we were talking before we came on about how on the Chinese side of the border, they've turned it into almost a tourist resort now as well for people to go and look across the border into North Korea. Are you, I mean, you, you're, you're concerned about yeah. some of the tourism there? No, I mean, it's different. I think that, um, you know, if you go on tour in order to do something, that's different. When you actually have a purpose, to go either, I mean, make a film or something, you know, to do something to help change that world is very different from just tourism because it's different. You know, one of the people I interviewed said, oh, there's no backward countries left and this is like the last backward country I would go. And that attitude of going into North Korea, I mean, basically you're, you're backpacking in, uh, I mean, you don't backpack because you go in there, minders take over and all you do is like three different great leader related monument, that's all you're gonna see. However, you know, backpacking into a gulag, I mean, that's torture porn. And the money that you spend, because it's not cheap to go to North Korea, does go to the regime. So I don't know what, um, how one can ethically explain that position of going to tour in a country where your dollar is gonna go to support the regime. Michael? I think the advantage of going, of having young people go there is, first of all, they come back with rather realistic views about the place. And secondly, in Korea, the North Korean population can see these young people and they're not ogres, they're just other human beings. I've always thought the Boeing 747 or 707 was one of the greatest contributions to peace because it's harder to hate people if you actually see them and you see they don't have horns or they don't have uh, big ears or they're not uh, horrible, they're just ordinary people. And so, uh, so long as you don't kid yourself, this is real yeah. tourism. Yeah. So long as you've got your eyes open, I think uh, dealing with this, this regime, we just have to keep our eyes open. And unfortunately, as was demonstrated just a week or so ago when they gave their guarded apology, the only time they ever take a step backwards is when people stand up to them. Mm. No, uh, question number one, yeah. Um, my question is about China and why hasn't China stepped in and also why doesn't China accept North Korean refugees? This like, is a, that, 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 is, that is a fascinating question. Yeah, why are they always on the line about that? Why they're always sitting on the fence? Well, China says, and I think this will have a certain resonance in Australia, these are not refugees, these are economic migrants. <laughs> And in fact, the Chinese ambassador to the United Nations insisted and demanded that we include in our report their letter to us saying that they, they uh, did not accept our uh, criticism that China was in breach of its obligations under the Refugees Convention by sending people back. Um, having uh, knowledge of the fact that sending them back is extremely dangerous to uh, some of them and that some of them would suffer greatly and some may even lose their lives. So China is in a, in a bind. China doesn't want to have the United States of America as its immediate 
neighbour. Mm. And China finds it convenient, I think, to have a country like DPRK separating China and South Korea. Um, but China must now realise this is a very dangerous place, dangerous of accidents and mistakes, mm. dangerous to the people of China, uh, killing off uh, Jiang Songtek, the, the uncle by marriage of the Supreme Leader, uh, who was apparently proposing that they go down the China path economically. And therefore, um, China is in a bind, and that's the hope that ultimately, the report being in the Security Council, that something can be done to get accountability for the crimes against humanity. These are not just ordinary nasty events and horrible acts. These are crimes against humanity, things that shock the conscience of humankind. And therefore, we, we just have to hope that with a bit of time, China will come to the view that something just has to be done. China, for a long time, the relationship between China and North Korea was described as being as close as lips and teeth because, of course, it was forged in battle during the Korean War. But I think after North Korea attained the bomb, had tested the bomb and hadn't told China that they were doing this either, there was a sense among the Chinese leadership that they'd lost control to a degree. Kim Jong-un has not been to Beijing. Um, He's not that, been invited. He has not been invited, that's right. And so I think there's a sense that they are concerned with what's going on there, but a sense as well that they may have slipped the noose a little bit and they may not have the control over them that they, they might have been able to exhibit in the past. It's, uh, it, as you say, it makes it a much more dangerous situation. Um, thank you, yeah, no, number, microphone number two. Hi, my name is Kendall Jennings. I'm American from Washington, D.C. area. I actually live in Melbourne now. And I had a question for Suki first. You know, I've, I've done mission trips around the world in Iraq, China, a lot of different places. And so I wanted to know, I do know some people that are doing illegal stuff in North Korea. And then I know people that are, you know, using their gifts and talents to, to get in and to start schools like what you were talking about, dentistry, et cetera. So I wanted to know if you found that effective. I know we talked about other ways people could get involved. So um, I'm wondering kind of on the smaller scale, if you think that those types of um, uses are helpful. And then also to Anna, I was wondering what you think the US in general should do then. Yeah. You mean the, in particular missionaries? Yeah, so I mean, that's, I don't know if you knew of other ones too. I know you weren't off the compound a lot, but if you found that one effective, I mean, so for me, I'm in corporate America, right? So I'm trying to figure out, and this, and North Korea is really special, like close to my heart, and I, I, I feel, I, I just, I think it's terrible what's happening there, but what, what does like the common person like me do, right? So if I could be effective and start these types of things, is that what I should be doing? So, yeah, I mean, I, want, I would like to know how you found it. Well, um, you know, I am half-minded about that question also because when I was doing the de facto research, generally the aid groups are all uh, missionaries. And, um, and the school I was with was an evangelical Christian organization. Um, there seems to be degrees with uh, the faith matter. When, uh, for example, this school, it wasn't clear how, uh, how much they're collaborating with the regime, meaning how much, is, how much money are you giving to Kim Jong-un regime in order to operate there. So that's the kind of thing that you can't really ever find out the answer to, or also the whole missionary angle, because there is something really uncomfortable also. These are already people who've been abused by one faith, uh, devout, devout followers of the great leader. Generally, when you interview defectors, they are all uh, also now 
devout believers of Jesus. So um, there is an uncomfortable angle of exploitation of a vulnerable population. Um, because the help doesn't just come, help comes, but in fact they get converted into another religion. So I think that's an, however, it's such a desperate population. So I do think that help is welcome and the help is necessary. I just think it's the degrees of both the question of um, condition of this conversion being such a you know, necessary part of that, or also how much are you collaborating? Depends, all depends on the different organization. How much are you collaborating with a regime? Because I wasn't convinced with the school I was in that they were not handing over the money to the regime. Maybe they were acting on the old Christian principle that if you're kind to people and you're seen to be a kind and decent person, that they will respect what, whatever you believe and become curious about what you believe and seek to find out about it. But there's no doubt that many of the refugees, especially the women, the overwhelming number of whom are women, who get into China, um, can often only turn to Christian supporters, uh, Republic of South Korean supporters, and some of them, many of them, have been very kind and generous and uh, so the, the faith communities have really not been a, all a bad story and, uh, and requiring that people sign up is not at all unusual in, in the history and, of No, no, so I'm, I think I'm, I am half-minded yeah. about that. And it's and I degrees. Think, I think, yeah. Anna, and you'd like to hear from Anna about what Americans yeah, yeah, yeah. could yeah, or should okay. do? Yeah, OK. I mean, clearly, I I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm the token sort of, you know, card-carrying anti-American foreign policy person on the panel, obviously. <laughs> that came through. Um, yeah. I, I, <laughs> yeah. We so. need you, we need you. <laughs> I'm, happy, I'm happy to be the outlier here. What I would like to see America do is stop its annual military exercises and put that money into diplomacy. I'd like to see it lift its sanctions. And if it's so worried about North Korea being, you know, this unpredictable and eccentric power with its nuclear weapons, why is it not saying the same thing about Israel? Why is it not also addressing what's happening in the Middle East? Um, I don't think America should be taking the moral leadership on this issue. I think what is happening with the United Nations and Michael's work is a wonderful way to do it, but not America. I don't think America should be driving this with North Korea, and I'd like to see all of us, including Australia and the Australian media, try and have a more nuanced and knowledge-based approach to the country, mm. rather than falling back on war rhetoric. Mm. So I dared in my film, all I did was try to humanise the North Korean people who through no fault of their own happened to be born there. And for my trouble and my pains, and I'm no foreign policy person, I'm an artist, um, I was branded by the Murdoch media for being a, a North Korean shill and for using taxpayers' dollars to fraternise with an enemy state. Um, that's kind of insane, given that these people hadn't even seen my movie or read my book, incidentally, but, but that's kind of crazy. We need to bring back the rhetoric. We need to stop doing this across the board. We need to stop making fun of North Korea, making it a parlour game. It is a dangerous country. But solving it with hard power, 70,000 tonnes of military diplomacy, that's not going to work. I think, I think the lesson that we've all been able to get today, a little, a little bit at least, is that there are human beings who live there. And I think that's, that's the important thing to take away. Yes, there is a regime, 
but there are human beings who live under that regime. Unfortunately, time's against us. There's another session coming and we could have been here all afternoon. But look, thank you so much for coming along. And please thank our guests. <laughs>